You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses add value and prepare for the future. Welcome to our Trowers and Hamlins podcast on the topic of building safety and how the existing and proposed requirements for making buildings safe and guidance around how to value properties affected by building safety issues is impacting valuation and funding in the residential real estate world. I am joined today by Richard Petty, Head of UK Living Advisory at JLL, and also Simon Latson, Lead Director of JLL's Building Consultancy Team, to talk about their experience of how the new and proposed legislation and existing practice guides around fire safety and building safety in residential properties are impacting them and their clients, and to discuss their thoughts around how some of the impact of building safety concerns can be mitigated. Welcome, Simon and Richard, and thank you for joining us today. Good afternoon, and thank you very much for inviting us to join you. Thanks, Richard. And hi, Simon. Hi, Katie. I guess a good place to start today um, is just to understand a bit more about the areas that each of you specialise in and your current experience around building safety and its impact on your roles, just as a bit of background. Uh, Richard, I don't know if you want to go first. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Well, I'm a valuer, so my interest lies primarily in how fire and building safety affect value um, and closely related to that, the willingness of the market to transact buildings with known or suspected safety issues um, and the willingness of lenders to accept them as security for loans. At JLL, uh, I'm responsible for our valuation business across all residential and living asset classes. Personal focus very much on affordable housing, um, but we also look across private sale, build to rent, um, which is often high rise in urban stock, student housing and healthcare. Uh, and we work uh, all over the country through our network of, of national and regional teams. So, so we see quite a lot of different buildings. In terms of, of our current experience, I, I think I'll probably just draw a big distinction between the valuation of whole blocks uh, and the valuation of individual flats. There have clearly been widespread challenges, very well reported in the press in the retail mortgage market, but that's not generally where we work as valuers, certainly not playing that side down, but I think that side is improving as, as mortgage lenders adapt to the RICS guidance that I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about later on. But in terms of the whole blocks being valued for charging, I think the greatest impact has been in affordable housing. But again, huge progress has been made there um, and the valuation process has become much smoother in recent months because of the approach to due diligence that valuers and lenders are taking. Thanks, Richard. And, and Simon, do you want to give us a bit of background to your role and experience? Yes, please. So um, I'm a building surveyor by background. I look after the residential building consultancy team at JLL and we get involved in development and existing property through the whole property life cycle. In the building safety space, we are involved in the investigation and remediation of buildings. And um, as Richard alluded to, we get involved in whole blocks rather than necessarily individual units. And probably most relevant to today's chat is helping my valuation colleagues to understand and interpret information they're sent um, to assist them with, with valuations. The biggest impact that I've seen is that fire safety is now the first question we are asked, whether it's for technical due diligence, whether it's through a transaction, 
whether it's for a new development, it's the first question that's asked and often the last question that's asked because it's the most important topic out there at the moment. Thanks, Simon. And I guess for both of you, what have been the main challenges created by concerns around building safety for each of you carrying out your roles, uh, Richard? I think the headlines for me as a valuer have um, firstly been around the complexity of the fire and building safety issues we've had to deal with. And as, as, as we all know, it's not just about cladding, it's a whole host uh, of other issues. And following on from that, it's the lack of efficient information on construction, um, how things have been put together, what the materials are and what the remedial costs are. And then probably it's been the delays in getting specialist investigations or, or reports done. And if you, if you do have a building with a B2 rating and it needs more investigation, you need better information as a valuer. That's not easy and it's not quick. So I think that has sometimes meant it's been difficult to value buildings and, and to balance the funders' instructions with what's practical in terms of what you can do as a valuer around due diligence. Thanks, Richard. Think, Simon? For me, I mean, the biggest challenge is that no two buildings are the same. There isn't a stock answer out there that can be applied to buildings. Even if you have two buildings that are of relatively similar or indeed identical construction, you can end up with different problems and different challenges for them. And you know, as, as Richard said, the availability of suitably qualified resources to be able to inspect and report on buildings has been quite challenging. It's, it's slowed things down considerably in, in terms of waiting you know, months for fire engineers or cladding consultants to be able to look at your buildings. The other challenges that we've seen is the quality of information that's held on site varies quite considerably. So we have seen some buildings where the health and safety file information doesn't look like the building that's been constructed and that causes uh, more delay. And then I guess the other big one at the moment is suitable insurance for those that are carrying out this work to give you know, reliance to, to clients and to funders and so that they can have um, suitable reliance on the advice that's being given. And, you know, I think that's, that's quite challenging because um, you, know, you can be getting some very, very good advice, but if that's not backed up by suitable insurance, then that can be challenging for lenders. Yes, I know I've started to see that coming through. And I guess there have been so many changes legislatively, practically, politically, with various guidance notes as well issued to try and get some clarity and certainty for funders and professionals, valuers, surveyors to try and assess the risk around building safety. And the EWS1 form was obviously introduced in part to try and assist with this. I think we had a position where there was quite a lot of panic around that and EWS1s were required for almost every property. And Richard, you alluded to that being a bit more of a smoother process. It's probably quite a good time to reflect on where we are now and just to understand what funders are asking for in terms of revaluing existing security or putting through new funding or sales um, and probably as a starting point to just understand the original purpose of the EWS1 um, and what, what we're seeing now from funders. Richard, did you want to answer that question? Yeah, EWS1 was certainly designed to uh, free up the logjam in the retail uh, mortgage market, I would say by giving building owners a clear and consistent structure uh, and a structure within which lenders and valuers could work, um, albeit 
you know, without either of them taking formal reliance on it. EWS ones are for the building owner. And I think we all recognize that it had a difficult first year or so uh, in, in its existence. It, it didn't work out quite as intended because it was certainly called for far too frequently on buildings that were never intended to be within scope. And I, I could understand the reasons for that, but it certainly probably caused, <laughs> caused as many delays as, as, uh, uh, as it solved problems. But in, in, in terms of where we are at the moment, I think we really have moved on. Last week was the annual fire safety conference uh, held by RICS, which was a really good uh, informative event. And one of the things that that came out of that, I think, was a clear message that the, the, the days of panic buying of EWS1 forms have, have finished. Um, there's a much more balanced and sensibly judged use of those forms uh, in terms of deciding when they're necessary um, and getting them done on buildings that are within the scope of the uh, current RICS guidance that I, I guess we'll talk about uh, a bit more later on, but it, that guidance is, is completely different from, from that which existed originally. And a couple of the speakers at the, the conference last week identified that EWS1 forms are probably required now on only about four or five percent of the mortgage valuations that are being done in this country on a day-to-day -day basis. So although the media reporting is often <laughs> giving a different impression, it really is a small minority of mortgage valuations where EWS1 forms are required by lenders. And I guess that matches our own experience as well, because we don't very often see buildings that require one or where we're offered one um, by, the, by the building owner. Now, the problems of, of EWS1 in practice have eased a great deal, um, and that's definitely helping the working of the market. And Simon, is that your experience um, as well? What are your thoughts on, on that? So my experience is, is similar to Richard's. I, th I think the term EWS1 is now being used to describe a process rather than a form, and it's being used to answer the question, is my building safe? An EWS1 process chart is actually quite a helpful process chart to show people how to, how to go about gleaning that information. But yeah, I'd, I'd agree with Richard. I think you know, we're, we're over, the, over the hill of panic and we're into a, a more sensible area of, of stood back evaluation as to whether these these things are actually required or not. There's also a, a good database of knowledge that's being built up in, in the big uh, mortgage lenders and, and mortgage valuers. And uh, again, this, this cropped up in the RICS conference last week, but the, the, the big valuers now have data on about 80% of the blocks of flats where they're asked for valuations. So, um, they, they know where they stand much more readily and can green light buildings um, pretty quickly in, in the great majority of, uh, of cases. They, they know where the problems are and they know where the problems uh, don't exist at all. And that's, again, really helping the process. Yeah, it seems really encouraging. And I think there's definitely a smoothing out, as you say, even from our side on, on the legal side. And I guess in, around getting EWS1 forms, what are the biggest building safety risks that you've been experiencing? And how's that been dealt with by landlords and funders? Simon, did you want to take that one? Yeah, so the the larger risks that, that we're seeing, without getting too technical into into you know specific types of insulation or specific types of system it's a lack of coordination of fire measures during construction um, is what we are is what we're seeing we are 
broadly seeing where we see problems there are quality of workmanship issues on buildings so rather than seeing people that haven't put fire barriers in for example we would be seeing people who haven't put fire barriers in properly or don't have continuous fire barriers so there's a 500 millimeter gap in your fire barrier at the critical point so we are seeing some quality of workmanship issues and that leads to a real difficulty in signing buildings off and that's the phrase i'll use in terms of saying that the whole building is safe because without being too facetious about it you have to take the whole building apart and put it back together again to be able to say that every single component of the building is exactly where it should be. So that causes us um, difficulty in signing buildings off or telling people that buildings are lower risk than other buildings. The other risks that we see are where lenders may be insisting on buildings being non-combustible or certainly where funders are insisting on buildings being non-combustible and it's just not possible with the construction type. Although I wouldn't say that was a major problem, I'd say that's, you know, but that is, that is sometimes happening in the market. But that's being mitigated quite well by the landlords and the funders, particularly in the landlords that we are working with, in that they're looking at their risks holistically, they're drawing all of their information together as one package and, and really starting to hone in on looking at their their buildings as one rather than looking at individual parts of the building. When the EWS1 form came out, the only question that we were being asked is, have I got combustible cladding on my building? And we would reply with, you need to look at your outside air to the inside air of your building to assess your wall makeup as to what your risk is. And we've gone through an evolution of that and now we're at is my building safe which is looking at the whole building the way in which the whole building is performing in terms of its fire safety and that that's all that's why i say we're on the down slope where we've gone past the big panic and we're getting into the place where we just look at is the building safe does it work and does it perform properly so whilst there are some interesting risks out there that we discover and one you know, i guess my my last big risk is when you start unzipping a building, you find more than you've bargained for. Um, you will always find things that you don't like and want to put right, so that's another risk. But, but whilst we're looking at these risks, they're now being managed into the future and they're being managed well, I think. Yeah, that's encouraging to hear. And I guess, and I don't know, Richard or Simon, which one's um, best answering that, taking into account everything that's coming through and the information that you've got. How do you go about actually valuing buildings with building safety issues what are you looking for and what are you taking into account i'll start us off on on that one i think that the, the, the first point to touch on is the rics guidance that was published in march and then introduced with effect from the, the 5th of april um, which which divides buildings into three categories and i'm, I'm sure um, listeners uh, to this will be familiar with those so um, you have buildings above uh, six stories, so seven stories plus in effect. Um, you've got buildings of five to six stories uh, and you've got buildings of one to four stories and some, some more detail in there that's sort of beyond beyond the scope of this conversation just at the moment around cladding, around the extent of cladding and around the configuration and materials used on balconies, including decking and balustrades, and, and how balconies might be joined together by material on the facade of the, of the building. 
So I think we've got some guidance that actually when you stand there and look at a building as a valuer is is pretty easy to apply in practice and it certainly is as, as easy to apply as it can be. It's, it's not without its challenges, but it's, I think, as, as good as it can possibly be. The other thing I think, however, that any valuer has to bring to his or her task is a bit of professional skepticism because it's not a, you know, a formulaic or, or, or mechanical approach to judging the characteristics of a building um, because there are certainly buildings where we would want to know more and may well indeed want to have an EWS1 report done or have some specialist investigation done, which on the face of the guidance shouldn't need one. And that's where your professional skepticism needs to come in. If as a valuer, you need more information to arrive at a robust and reliable opinion of value, you shouldn't be afraid uh, to, to ask for it. I suppose behind that is, is this the fundamental question that we're trying to answer for lenders in any loan security valuation is, would this building sell and, and how much for, given the basis of valuation and, and the date of valuation when you're giving that opinion? Um, and ultimately, we have to stand behind those judgments. So we've got to have enough information. We've put a lot of work in, as you all know, Katie, and as I hope listeners will know, with our, our colleagues at Savills on, on the um, joint note that we put out about valuing buildings in the affordable housing sector back in uh, in June. And there's a list of questions at the back of that, which are the ones that both firms will put to borrowers on behalf of our lender clients asking for more information and uh, that's working very well in practice i have to say with the, with the vast majority of borrowers they're well equipped to answer those questions but it's a combination of applying the guidance bringing your professional skepticism to the task as well and asking for that comprehensive set of, of due diligence thanks richard and i guess just thinking about some other questions around that i mean what sort of funder questions are you getting are they just the ones that you've kind of created from that guidance note or are funders going further than that and are they sort of reasonable in their inquiries yeah i think i think funders by and large are uh, are very reasonable actually in in, in their quests uh, so we're, we're typically being asked for reasonable assurance on um, the basis of what we both can see uh, and the information we've provided um, about the materials that have been used on the wall system. Um, the more difficult questions are being about what's behind them, which then, as Simon was saying a moment ago, comes down to the questions, that the information that, uh, that we're provided with. Ultimately, I think the funders are looking for a sort of nuanced judgment of whether or not further um, investigation uh, is required. So they want us to find out whether the building owner is assessed the cladding material, the makeup of the walls, what independent advice they've got, not what they've produced in-house, but what reliable independent advice they've got on those matters, um, and whether we think further investigations or remedial works are, are required, and whether ultimately we think the building's suitable uh, as, as security. But I think the way in which those requests are being phrased is becoming more pragmatic and there are one or two exceptions to that where we have to explain the limitations of what we can do. But I think generally funders are working really well with valuers on, on these questions. That's really encouraging. I don't know, Simon, if you've got anything more to add at, at this stage to what Richard said. Not at, no, not at this stage. I mean, I, I just echo that, that I agree with Richard that you know, valuers are, are not fire engineers. Um, they're not expected to be fire engineers and, and they need to assess the reasonable information they're provided with 
to see whether or not that that information is is acceptable. And um, you know, I've, I've said to valuation colleagues in the past that they should do that in exactly the same way that they would do it with any other piece of information that they are provided with to support a valuation. So they would look at who it's been produced by, how it's been produced, and what conclusions it reaches. So you know, are those conclusions on the face of it reasonable? And if they are, then they should adopt that, the information that they're provided with. But if it's patently wrong, or there are additional questions that they want to ask, they should they should go back. But they don't need to be unscrewing cladding panels or looking at the uh, fire alarms of buildings in order to, to complete evaluation. Thank you. And we've had a query just today um, from a borrower, but I guess, is there any differential from funders or how you approach valuation on the different ratings within the EWS1 form? So there's obviously A1, um, A2 rating, um, but anything less than that, are you seeing that valuers aren't able to give a value for that or funders not willing to fund on a, a lesser rating than A1, A2? What's your experience, Richard? Well, valuers can certainly value, whether it's A2, A3 or, or, or B2, uh, depending on, as we've discussed, the information available. I think it's not it's not a binary question. So I think it will, and Simon said earlier, that every every building is, is, is different and he's absolutely right. We know, for example, from recent conversations that one of the, the major lenders in the mortgage market will, uh, in principle, lend against A3 or, or even a B2 rated building but it will depend on who's paying for the works it will depend on the scale of the expenditure in relation to the value of the property and it will depend on whether those works have been scheduled uh, and what interim safety measures are in place so fire alarm improvements for example or, or a waking watch so it's very much a case-by-case -case basis and, and I, I don't think it's the case that say that lenders won't lend against b2 some won't for sure but some some will or might and you know, i think we have to take things very carefully on a case-by-case -case basis i guess the other thought on that is that responsible building owners have to make sure that their buildings are uh, as safe as they can be and that the people who live in them are as safe as they can be so particularly with so much political uncertainty at the moment around ews1 uh, and around you know, the independent expert statement back in July and what the Secretary of State at the time said in response to that, that I think there is a danger that some building owners will try and do the works they need to do and the measures they need to do, put the ball into the net between the goalposts where we can currently see them. But there is a chance that the goalposts will move um, and we're not quite sure in which direction or by how much. So keeping in mind that basic statutory duty and moral duty to make buildings safe and keep the people who live in them safe is what the objective should be rather than just a sort of narrow view on um, complying with the current requirements as they stand. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I guess, is it possible to actually give a value to every property? Have you given nil values? I know that um, some of the lending or the borrower community in particular are concerned around getting nil values, but I guess what are the circumstances in which that may need to be the case? Well, it's always possible, I think, Katie, to put a value on a property. But the caveat to that is, is that, um, as, as we've touched on already, a valuer needs to have sufficient information to do that. And valuers, uh, I don't think, 
should go about making heroic assumptions about things that are not known or not revealed to them or, or fully understood. Yes, as value as we make reasonable assumptions all, all the time about things like title or ground conditions or the, or the presence or otherwise of certain materials in buildings. But on this fire safety and building safety point, I really think it's important that valuers and building owners work together to, to bottom out all the due diligence questions and insurers, as, as we've already touched on, are particularly nervous about all professionals' activity around fire safety. That applies to valuers uh, as well. So where it's either evidence that there is a problem, but you don't fully understand what the cost or the implications of that are, or you don't know whether or not there's a problem, making an assumption that there isn't one is not a terribly sensible way forward, I don't think. So given also that you know, when, when you give a, an opinion of value, it is nailing your colours to a particular point. It's not a range, it's an opinion and it's a, a definite figure. So to arrive at that level of certainty, in your opinion, you've got to have all the information. So there are certainly some instances where valuers don't have as much information as they need to give an opinion, but that doesn't mean that the building isn't worth anything. It means that you can't give an opinion on the basis of the information you've got at the moment. and Certainly in, in the in the affordable housing sector, I draw a really clear distinction between that and the device that we've seen used in the mortgage market sometimes, where in order to prevent an advance being given of any sort, some mortgage valuers have put nil values on properties. That's a device to stop lending. It doesn't mean that the, the property isn't worth anything. Thanks, Richard. And I guess from my experience as well, and we've touched on that in some ways in the conversation so far, but sometimes there seemed to be a tendency of trying to get someone to certify that a building is safe and who kind of takes that responsibility. And I know, Simon, you've touched on um, insurance and whose PI that decision or that opinion rests on. I know from our perspective, We've seen sort of funders and, and their lawyers trying to put that into certificates of title and asking us to opine on like the height of the building and the, the combustible cladding that might be available in the building, which I really don't think sits within what we do. But I guess, you know, in your view, where does that fit? Um, who should be assessing the risk and who should be confirming what? I don't know, Simon, if you wanted to take that one. Yeah, so the responsibility for building safety sits with the building owner or the person that is in control of the building, so the responsible person. And they they might seek to get help in assessing their risks or assessing their safety or even implementing their safety, but it sits with it sits with the building owner, the, the responsible person for that for that building. They need to go through a risk assessment process and potentially an investigative process in order to determine you know, what risks there are in the building, whether it's safe, whether additional works need to be done, or, or whether those, those risks are, are presently acceptable. It's um, certainly in the context of valuation, I don't think it's something a valuer can do. I don't think it's something with the greatest of respect that a lawyer can do. And, you know, Often it's not something a building surveyor can do. You know, there are lots of building surveyors out there who are also qualified fire engineers and they can do it. But it is a is a, a myriad of, of different considerations um, which has got to sit in one place. 
and um, in my view is the person that's responsible for saying the building is safe and operating the building safe, so the responsible person who's in charge of it. Thanks Simon, I won't get you to have a look at any of our certificates of title and tell us <laughs> what you think about my uh, combustible cladding expertise. But um... Well I'd, yeah, I mean it's okay answering questions that that that, that funders that, that are factual that they want you to answer but this you know, building safety is an iterative process it's a daily management process it's not something that comes along and gets signed off once like an MOT and then you're okay forever it can change the next day and external walls are really important at the moment and it's really highlighted some fairly serious things going on in in the building industry but that, that's one consideration of building safety. It's big, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that this isn't a huge issue, but it's one consideration. There are many others that can do it. As, as I said earlier, you can have two buildings that are ostensibly the same. One building has a single escape stair and the other has two escape stairs and your answers for those buildings are going to be different. So there isn't, a, there isn't unfortunately, particularly building squares, we love to put stuff in neat little boxes and say that's how we're going to fix that problem. This problem isn't fixable by putting it in a box. What's happening in practice around what people are doing to kind of make sure that they are compliant with the Fire Safety Act and the Building Safety Bill legislation that's coming through? I'll answer that backwards, sorry. Building owners, generally speaking, are taking their responsibilities incredibly seriously and they are doing an enormous amount of work to investigate their portfolios, risk assess their portfolios, take a holistic view of their buildings and then implement solutions. So if you take you know, developers going back and fixing cladding problems and put that to one side, you know, we, we are looking at, with building owners of large portfolios, we're looking at everything from facades through fire alarm systems, through fire door checks, through penetrations, the type of materials and pipe work, you know, dampers in air conditioning systems, etc. So building owners, I think generally speaking, are really taking this issue seriously and really want to deal with it. So that's the reaction that we're seeing. We're seeing forensic surveying on buildings that we I've never seen at that, at that level before and EWS1 for me has become the colloquialism for is my building safe you know, we're asked inside my own organization do I need an EWS1 form for this for pretty much every type of building you could possibly imagine um, and we're asked externally do I need an EWS1 form for this and what they're asking is is my building safe what are the risks that I need to take into account in the valuation that I'm preparing and what questions do I need to ask so yeah I mean that's that's kind of where I am with it I think I think clients are we're o over over the panic bit and we're into the into the really detailed sensible bit of of, of looking at your portfolios of buildings and with Royal Assent, the Building Safety Bill coming in April, July 2022 and the implementation sort of next October 22 to April 23, I guess that's not much time for landlords to get in place all of the necessary checks and roles and infrastructure, but they're going to be bringing in the new gateway regime, um, the identification of an accountable person, the appointment of a building safety manager. 
and I know there's some political pressure as well to kind of stop the use of the EWS one form is the answer to all of that. What are your views on the ongoing use of, of the EWS one form? Is it is it needed still? What are your thoughts? Should I, should I pick that one up, Katie? Uh, the short answer is I think yes, um, EWS one is still needed. It has a very important part to play. It was interesting back in in July when we had the independent expert statement and then Robert Jenrick's statement to Parliament and the, the independent expert statement said that there was in effect no systemic risk to, to buildings below 18 metres and that they didn't think that EWS1 forms um, should be uh, required on buildings below 18 metres and the Secretary of State agreed with that but that's in direct contrast or conflict with RICS guidance as, as it stands at the moment and I think a lot of surveyors, be they building surveyors or valuers, are, are uncomfortable with the idea that there are no buildings below 18 metres that present fire safety problems. There certainly are. We, 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 we've seen them in practice. And that's why RICS widened the scope of its guidance to valuers to, to divide buildings into the, the three categories that we were talking about earlier. I think the, the lender community is very clear on what an EWS1 form is and what it means. And you know, we've, we've been through that sort of difficult first nearly two years now of, of EWS1 forms in, in use. There's a much better understanding of them now than there was. And mortgage lenders really value them in those circumstances where they do need one. So we've got RICS as a professional body saying, well, hang on a second use of EWS1s is not a political decision, it's a professional decision. It's for us to review our guidance and decide what we do with it in the proper way in due course. And we've got the lenders collectively saying that they find them useful and they would like them to continue, um, certainly um, uh, for, for the time being. And if they were to be withdrawn, I think we'd be looking at EWS2. Um, uh, and I, I guess to complicate the picture, slightly and you know, we, we also got the government saying that the consolidated advice note will be withdrawn but it's not clear yet when that will happen um we've got um uh, pas 9980 um coming in but it's not clear exactly when that's going to be introduced and lenders and, and surveyors in the round will need to look at you know, what position we end up with in terms of those other moving parts to decide what guidance we need and what uh, what role there is for EWS1 going forward, but for the time being, absolutely, it's still needed. And I suppose on the RICS issued guidance, would that change anytime soon, or do you need to know and have everything a bit more settled in terms of what the future looks like before they, they're likely to issue anything? Have they given any guidance on their guidance? <laughs> well, at, at their own conference last week, our, our ICS was, was very clear that despite what government said back in July that there's nothing materially wrong with the guidance, there's nothing factually wrong with it, and certainly as long as the consolidated advice note is in place, um, I don't think they will change it, but government could withdraw that at any time, and it is explicitly referenced in the RICS guidance, so if that goes, the guidance will have to change a bit, and I think it is being looked at in RICS, but I, I don't anticipate uh, significant or wholesale changes to the guidance in the short term. 
beyond that, it's very difficult to say, but I don't think it will change much in the short term. So just bringing the, the conversation to a close, because I'm conscious of time, there's a lot to navigate and this isn't the final picture and only talking really about the position now because there's so much change um, to come, but hopefully we will see some more clarity and certainty emerging um, with the creation of the accountable person, the building safety manager and, and the other proposals under the building safety bill. I mean, Richard and Simon, it's probably worth just seeing if you've got some final thoughts on, on what your clients, landlords, borrowers should be prioritising now in terms of building safety, especially if they're looking to go through a revaluation re cycle or they're looking to fund properties when, when they're coming up, especially those that could have building safety issues. Richard, do you want to go first? I think in terms of final thoughts, um, just divide them between borrowers and lenders. I, th I think for borrowers, my, my plea would be to get your ducks in a row well ahead of putting a building into charge or getting it revalued. Uh, if you have buildings of any height that might be caught under the RICS guidance as it currently stands, that the more information you can get together from reliable independent sources in good time, the easier that whole process will be. And if it turns out you don't need an EWS1 form, um, then you're saving yourself a lot of time and trouble by working that out now. If you do need one, panic buying's over. It's a good time to get it. There are a lot more assessors being trained by RICS at the moment. About 900 people, I think, actually going through that training. And given that we had, I think, fewer than 300 qualified fire engineers able to give EWS1 forms when they were introduced. That's a huge increase in the pool of professionals to, to give these. So get it sorted out. So secondly, for lenders, I think this, this is happening already, but the plea is, is please to be proportionate, be reasonable in what you ask of valuers and be commercially sensible about the lending decisions you take on the back of that advice. And there are plenty of signs that that is happening, but that, that really needs to to continue. My very final thought, I think, is, is just to keep a close eye on this space because we will see some changes from, from government, I'm sure, over the next few weeks or months. That will trigger some changes in RICS guidance. Past 9980 is going to change the way that fire risk assessments are done. So this is not going to stand still, this, this whole area, in the next few weeks and months. And we need to keep a close eye on it. Thanks, Richard. And Simon, what are your final thoughts um, on the whole building safety issue and surveying and valuing? So from a building surveying perspective, which is which is normally the, the technical due diligence area of, of supporting valuations, I really would echo Richard's thoughts on getting your information together and making sure that it's all up to date. And I, I would say that the, the landlords and property managers that we are working with are, are already in that space of, of having done their homework, having done their risk assessments and understanding their portfolios. And the next, the next big thing that's coming up and is being addressed by the sort of leading organisations at the moment is getting yourself ready for the building safety bill, getting your getting yourself ready for for the accountable person and, and making sure you've got all that information. You know, you're as with any form of form of lending or or transaction. You know, knowledge and information is everything. And if you have your knowledge and information ready, it's going to go smoothly, and you'll know what your risks are. And if you don't, it's going to grind to a halt whilst you go and do it. But I do think we're 
Yeah, we're in a space where most of the people that we're working with are, are really very well organised with us. They just need to need to keep going. I'd agree with Richard that this won't be the end of it. It will change. It's going to change in the future, but the responsible building owner will deal with what they know now and, and deal with their risks as they know them now and will deal with any future risks that highlight themselves in the future. Thanks, Richard and Simon. Um, I guess that's time to draw this conversation to a close. I just want to thank you both for your time today. It's a pleasure. Thank you very thank much. Thank you for having us. It's clear that the future of the EWS1 form is uncertain, but until all various aspects of legislation is in place under the building safety reforms, valuers, funders and borrowers do appear to need the form or some form of equivalent certification or assessment and suitable guidance to be able to quantify the risks and costs around the impact of building safety on secured lending. I'm just going to plug at this point our Trowers and Hamlin's Building Safety Mini Conference for all our landlord, tenant and funding clients, which is on the 4th and 5th of November, where we will be inviting back Richard and Simon to talk alongside colleagues at Savills to discuss more around the future of the EWS1 form. Please do get in touch for details around this. I'd like to take a moment again to thank Richard and Simon very much for their time and insights today. If any of you have any questions around any of the points discussed today, then please do not hesitate to get in touch with any of us. Our contact details are on the podcast information sheet. Thank you all for listening today, and I hope that you have enjoyed this podcast. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers, or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.